It's hot, dry, and, hmm, flooding. This is way over our heads. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny, how you doing? Doing well. It's, uh, yeah, it's hot. I was feeling it today. <laughs> well, this is Thursday, the 13th of April. And yes, uh, I think we're staring down another potential record high today. We had one yesterday. The oh, 12th. yeah, that goose is cooked. We already broke the record. <laughs> when we're As we're talking, I think we've already had a high of 87. The old high, record high was 84. So Okay. Yeah, two days in a row in the Twin Cities, and certainly some other parts of Minnesota broke a record today, too. Well, Kenny, as you know, I've started to embrace winter, but I'm still very happy to bid it a fond farewell. Oh, yeah, you must be so happy to have oh. the hot weather. I you mean, know, Put on the shorts, put on the oh, yeah. short sleeve shirt. It's all beautiful. Yeah. You know, the impact on mental health is incredible. You know, someday we should do a show. We should get an expert on mental health and we can yeah. talk about it. I would just sit and watch you guys talk. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> but I mean, it just, it just really makes you feel good because you see, you know, flowers are starting to come up. It, it, oh, spring is here. You notice that the trees are breaking bud? Oh, yeah, saw that today. They yeah, were flying of, around in the wind. You yeah, can see a lot, the, lot yeah. of trees budding, birds out. Yeah, lots of stuff. Right. So. Well, we got a lot to talk about here, Kenny. Well, let's start, first of all, with the fact that, yeah, record temperatures, and here we are, not quite mid-April. Yeah. So is this all that unusual? Well, well I mean, we broke records two days in a row, and that, you know, record highs... Uh, Although we do break them more now than we used to, they're still not that common. You don't break that many record high temperatures in a given year. And doing it two days in a row, that's yeah, a little unusual. It's not unheard of. I mean, this is this heat wave, I think we can call this a heat wave because we're now three days in a row with temperatures in the 80s, at least, in southern Minnesota. And we had some 90s sprinkled in there in parts of southern Minnesota. So. Um, you can call it a heat wave. It's, you know, we've had similar and even slightly worse ones uh, in April. So in mid-April of, nine, I'm sorry, of 2002, uh, Twin Cities had uh, 91 degrees on April 15th. That's the earliest 90 degree reading on record. And so you could argue that that was a maybe more substantial heat wave than this one because it was a couple degrees warmer, roughly the same time. Uh, we've had other ones, you know, give or take a day or so that are within a degree or so of where we are in the Twin Cities. So 88, 89, 87 degrees. We've had it, um, but it's not super common. As you know, most years, you're not doing this in mid-April. I mean, right. you know... You're not struggling to sleep at night with the windows open in in mid-April all that frequently. So yeah, it's it's a it's I would say it's uh, atypically hot, but not unheard of. Now some people will complain that we went from winter to summer in like one fell swoop. Yeah. Now March was cold, oh, colder sure. than usual. Yeah. Uh, correct. That is true. It's below normal for temperature. And we did not hit 50 in March, did we? Or did we? We, if we did, it was late. It would have it to be very late. Unremarkable. March. Yeah. Yeah. And but normally we hit 50 oh, earlier. Oh, normally in you March, do better than 50. Maybe in even March. in February. Yeah, yeah. Normally yeah. you do you do better than 50 in March. It's it's actually not uncommon to hit 60 degrees during March, and we didn't even come close in the Twin Cities. Wow. And most of Minnesota, and that's because we had all that snow. 
Uh, I do want to point something out, though. Uh, I mean, we haven't had much snow in April in Minnesota yet this year, but I think people are kind of prepared mentally for that possibility. And, uh, and this hot weather is not, you know, we've been here. So I, you heard me mention 2002. That was the last time, the first time, that we hit 90 this early in the year. And uh, April of 2002 was interesting. We had a 90, uh, so we broke a record high, the hottest ever so early in the year. And that still stands as one of our snowiest Aprils on record. After that 91 degree reading in the Twin Cities, the Twin Cities had well over 10 inches of snow spread over multiple dates. And uh, other parts of Minnesota had foot, foot and a half of snow yet that winter. So, uh, you know, the presence of hot air in April doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, it really okay. <laughs> doesn't. We, uh, we've had other hot years. I want to say 1977 was really hot in April, and that ended up being just kind of a wet year. It's not, it's not much of a predictor. Now, when you get into May and spring is fully underway, and summer is even beginning, and you start getting 90-degree temperatures, that actually has a relationship to the rest of the summer. We find that if it's hot multiple times in May, more likely than not, you're going to have a hotter than normal summer with more 90 degree days than normal. That's just, but that's because you're kind of already in that homogenous season of summer. But here in April, where you still could switch to, you know, you could get snow yet. You right. We're not the, done with yeah, that Yeah, you might not be. So, right. so I, I wouldn't make too much of it other than that it was a very, very sharp U-turn from where we had been. And the boy, the snow melted in a hurry. Uh, we heard from someone in central Minnesota. They lost 22 inches of snow in about four days. It's wow. really unreal. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, I noticed today, I always use these as kind of a barometer, but you know, there are those little mounds of snow that are encrusted in dirt. And it takes a lot of energy to melt yeah. that kind of snow. They're all gone. Oh, there were gone some now. yesterday that I saw, but no remnants left today. Oh, yeah, it's because the air. Remember, we measure air temperature. It's essentially the temperature in the shade. And a lot of those holdouts, aside from the, the big mounds that were in you know parking lots, and there's still a few of those left, but a lot of those holdout mounds of snow, they're in they're on the you know the south side of the street where they're protected by a house from the sun. They're in the shade. But the shade, you know, the shade's in the eighties. You're going to melt right. snow. You're going to melt snow. We've melted a lot of snow over the last uh, few days. Well, we've got a couple of things on our side right now in terms of melting snow. Obviously, we have an increasing sun angle. Right. It is light for a longer period of yeah. time. So we've got the solar energy at work. And as I look out the window here, we're at the Town Hall Lanes in South Minneapolis on 34th Avenue South. I'm looking across the street at the American flag, which is pointing to the north, meaning the wind is coming from the south. Right. So we've got warm air advection. We're going to start talking about some meteorological terms here every time we uh, do the show, Kenny. So essentially what is happening is we're getting warm air that's coming in from the south, correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. Yeah. So we've got the confluence of the warm air coming in and 
increasing solar energy, mm -hmm. uh, which is making uh, it hot. Yeah, and plus the wind. You know, the wind. Think of what wind does. I mean, it just kind of forces the air to smother whatever it touches, and so you get that warm air kind of blasted into the snowpack. Yeah, so there's no more snowpack. Right. I mean, it's like an infusion. Now let's talk about this uh, past winter season. Uh, yeah, where sure. are we at now? And you pointed out quite correctly, especially given what we've seen in the last few years, is that we're not out of the woods yet in terms of snow. Yeah, I we're mean, not done. We're, yeah. we're not calling it. But as of April 12th, you can call it 13th because we're not getting any snow today. Right. Uh, we're basically in top three territory. The Twin Cities having its... And we have records that go back into the 1880s in the Twin Cities. This is our third snowiest winter so far. Now, wow. I will admit, we got a ways to go to crack number two. We'd need another, well, almost six inches okay. to make it to number two. That might be a reach. That might be a reach, and we'd need about nine inches to get to number, to beat number one. So I, I wouldn't say that advancing farther is likely at this point, but I will also say it's possible. Right. I would not be shocked. Either number is still on the table, Jim. I mean, have <laughs> we talked about 1984? No, not recently. All right, let me tell you about 1983-84 winter. 1983-84 winter is the winter that currently holds the record. That's the snowfall champion for the Twin Cities. We had 98.6 inches of snow. Now, however, at this time in 1984, April, whatever, 13, they had slightly less snow than we have right now. Oh, what gives, Kenny? How could this be? Oh, well, at the end of, and it, so it had been a very snowy winter. They're sitting at, you know, 88, 89 inches. They're doing well. April 26 comes by. April 26, you get a tornado. It touches down in northeast Minneapolis, travels into St. Anthony. Yes. Devastates what was called Apache Plaza. Do you remember Apache well, Plaza? Well, you know what? I actually remember that evening because, yeah. and maybe this dates me, I was at Northrop Auditorium watching a Peter, Paul, and Mary concert. Oh, boy. This and, sounds uh, unfortunate in so many well, ways. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. I still love Peter, Paul, okay. and Mary. Great Fair folk enough. singers, you know. Yeah. Whatever. Well, I was but. just, I, at the same time, I was just getting to the age where my parents weren't playing Peter, Paul, and Mary's, uh, <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mommy record for me anymore. I was Which in, I have. Yeah, so. I, was in, I was in fourth grade. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, that dates me a bit. So, the, so it was a killer tornado. It was right. rated, it was, ended up getting an F3 rating from um, Dr. Fujita's team. Uh, because of the damage mostly in the uh, apartments and kind of condos near Apache Plaza. So there was pretty widespread damage in Northeast Minneapolis, St. Anthony, and parts of Roseville. And it was big news. And then there was another severe thunderstorm complex that went through the western metro area the next morning on the, on the 27th. So a one-two punch of severe weather. And then, take a deep breath, let 36 hours pass and 8 to 11 inches of snow <laughs> at the very end of the month, on the 29th and the 30th. So, you know, again, the odds of this happening, they're 
shrinking with every passing day. But if 1983-84 was number was only number two up until those last moments in April. So if they, they could do it, we could do it. I wouldn't give up on the snow just yet. Okay. Well, it's interesting. We talked about this in a previous podcast, but kind of that early 1980s period into oh, yeah. the mid-80s, that was sort of the, uh, I guess, the gold standard of snowstorms because I remember the 81-82 winter was pretty tough. And that's our number two winter for okay. snowfall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sitting up around 95 and change for the Twin Cities. And, you know, it, it was snowy across all of Minnesota. We have a lot of snowfall records from that period. Uh So it's not just the Twin Cities. That's just where we happen to have the longest statistics. Right. And the other thing interesting about that time period, too, and we've talked about this before, is that we had some uh, kind of severe activity during the severe storm season, too. Especially 83, we had the straight-line winds. Oh, 83 was an incredible year for severe weather with uh, a season that really stretched. It got a little bit of a late start. started in late June. Um, but it went all the way through the summer and we were still experiencing severe weather with sirens going off into mid-September that year. Uh, yeah, 1983, also 81, had the uh, Adina Lake Harriet Harmar yes. tornado and uh, other severe weather outbreaks. Any listeners who would be in the Eau Claire area would remember July 15th, 1980. That was kind of their... Fridley, 1965, a huge severe weather outbreak with uh, wind gusts at their airport clocked over 100 miles an hour, plus tornadoes, multiple fatalities, kind of a night of, you know, destruction and terror in the Eau Claire area. And even, you know, we were heading to the basement here in the Twin Cities from that same storm as it passed through with uh, 60 to 90 mile an hour winds reported in the Twin Cities area. And... uh, 1979 so really the period where we got into groovy intense winters also was that kind of accompanied by one of the most active severe weather episodes periods on record the the late 70s and early 80s were very snowy and very tornado-y very tornado-y yeah, i like that yes. very duration-y in mm-hmm. fact they had such a huge impact on our climatology that the first ever study of derechos, which was done in 1987 by, uh, by someone from what was then the National Severe Storms Prediction, uh, Forecast Center. Now the Storm Prediction uh, now Center. Now the Storm yes. Prediction Center. Uh, they, those authors had actually identified Minnesota as derecho alley because we had so many damaging windstorms from the late 70s into the mid 80s that we appeared to be you know have more of these now now and with more data coming in over recent decades we're we're just one of many very active regions but yeah you know that period was so active that it made us the derecho capital of the country wow yeah i never knew that kenny so we'll segue again here back to uh the weather situation today and folks will be hearing this probably over the weekend but this is thursday april 13th and 
we had a very snowy winter. Oh yes, they didn't even talk about that. Right, and we'll get to that. We, you know, just looking at Minnehaha Creek, which isn't that far from where we're speaking right now. Yeah. It's uh, pretty full. Yeah, it is. Minnehaha Falls is looking pretty robust. Yet we're sitting here with relative humidities today under 20%. Yeah. So what's with that? We've got tons yeah. of water from our snow melt, but yet it's pretty darn dry. Can we just let the listeners know that Jim Dubois actually knows the answer to this, but <laughs> he's kind of playing dumb for you. Uh, yeah, so we're going to do this kind of like professor and student style then, since I know it's you know. It's very Socratic. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we're going to do some Socratic. Uh, so, okay. It is correct. The relative humidity is very low. It's been in, in fact, just before we recorded, the relative humidity in the Twin Cities was 13%. And that's with a temperature in the upper 80s. That's wild. And that's why, and with the winds gusting up to 30 miles an hour, that's why if you, if you light a match and you accidentally flick it, you could burn down a neighborhood. Yes. So uh, very, very good fire conditions. But Jim, what's not happening right now that might be contributing to that very low relative humidity? What is not yet on the landscape? Oh, this is interesting. It and it is vegetation. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Evapotranspiration. Right. Yes. You want to explain to the listeners what evapotranspiration is? Well, maybe I'll <laughs> give that to you, yeah, Kenny, sure. since you are the yeah. expert. Yes. Evapotranspiration could just be defined as the water loss from surface waters through evaporation, and the water loss from plants through transpiration. They get combined into one term. But there's actually no such thing physically as evapotranspiration. It's that you've got evaporation and transpiration, and they occur for basically the same reasons, which is heat stress onto either a water surface or a plant surface. Okay, so it's early spring, and we just melted all the snow. And so now we have bare ground. We have a bunch of dead what vegetation called litter, that's the stuff that falls off during fall and winter. We've got a little extra load of it this year because we lost a lot of limbs and branches during, during the winter from all the heavy snow. But because all of that stuff is not connected to any root system anymore, there's no water being conducted through the branches, through the, the, you know, through the capillaries or anything. So, so all it can do is lose whatever water it has once it gets dry and it's very good at drying out or desiccating quickly and at the same time because there's no water being transported through the litter and there's also no water being transmitted not in a meaningful quantity through the still living plants they're mostly dormant we're not getting any water returned to the atmosphere so this time of year before green up it is much easier to be dry than once you get into May. So it feels like a horrific drought, doesn't yes, it? I mean, yes. it feels dangerous. Well, you see the dust, oh. I mean, flying all over the it place. It feels dangerously dry. But we've had massive fires, wildfires in the spring uh, before green up for years that ended up being pretty wet. It's not, it's, it's not really a sign of anything because the land hasn't even had a chance to give moisture back to the atmosphere. 
So this is just what happens when you get a warm air mass before the vegetation is not even mature, but before it's even out. I mean, as you've seen here in the Twin Cities and in most of southern Minnesota, there's that ephemeral vegetation that just sprouts up. It's usually short, you know, squill, certain crocuses, little things that'll sprout up early. But we have not yet seen leaves out on most trees, on bushes. We haven't seen widespread flowering. And that all tells you that the plants are mostly dormant or just now breaking dormancy with some, some, some trees and bushes budding. It'll be a good month, maybe three weeks at least, before we're really in a situation where we could feel the additional moisture coming off of those plants. So any warm air mass until we get to that point is going to have the potential to be quite dry especially with southwesterly winds like we've had here okay well we're teaching you a number of different terms today we talked a little bit about warm air advection did we say what advection was though no we did not kenny do you have a good uh, explanation for our listeners isn't it transporting either heat or humidity from another location yeah it's an interesting i mean so really what advection in meteorology it's a little different from the technical term in meteorology we use it to describe any time the air mass moves laterally so if you know one air mass replaces another you call it advection of cold air or of warm air or of humidity or of dry air you call it moisture advection cold air advection but truthfully it's a form of heat transfer You've got your basic heat transfer mechanisms, radiation, conduction, convection. Yes. Okay, and just to be clear, radiation is when you have essentially a heat source that radiates heat to through some medium, usually through the air, and then begins heating other objects. Conduction is the molecule-to-molecule transfer of heat through a solid, usually a solid or a continuous medium so you conduct heat through especially through you know solid objects with high density metals you can conduct heat through wood you can conduct heat through water and air it's just more effective in some ways than others but that's when you know you you put a torch on one side of a pipe and you tell your friend to hold the other side and now you've got a really mean practical joke right right that's a trick of conduction convection is when you're boiling water Right? The heat starts at the bottom of the pot and, and eventually convects upwards and you get those boiling, rolling motions as the heat transfers vertically. And advection is lateral transfer of heat. It's usually driven by the wind, essentially. And we also talked about evapotranspiration, yeah. which you did define. Sure. And then you brought up another term, desiccation, which ah. is the absorption of moisture. Right. And how people might know that is if you have purchased anything like an electronics device, there'll usually be a little desiccant package right. in the box. And it will say, desiccant, do not eat, so don't yes. eat it. But uh, you'll see that sometimes, too, in medications. Right. Something to absorb moisture. So this is something we're going to be doing here on Way Over Our Heads, talking about some uh, meteorological terms and defining them every week. Very good. So let us move on now. We've talked a little bit about uh, our kind of paradox where we've got a lot of water 
a lot of melting snow, but yet it's very, very dry. Let's move on to something else that's being discussed right now. A recent paper from the American Meteorological Society. We've talked about climate change on way over our heads before. And here's one that's interesting. We've talked about climate change impacting a lot of things. We haven't talked about it impacting sports. Baseball. Baseball. So how does, you know, climate change impact home runs? Yeah. I mean, this is an old, this is actually an old kind of fun back of the envelope type problem. I'm glad someone took a look at it. I remember one of my environmental science professors um, asking us how much to try and calculate how much faster you could go by accelerating when the world is three degrees warmer. This is because air density decreases with temperature. So as as you get to warmer conditions, the air is less dense. If the air is less dense, that means something can travel through it with less, you know, more effectively. And so it can go farther and or faster. So here's where baseballs come in. We've known, you know, that the hot weather stadiums, if all other things were equal, which they never are, but hot weather stadiums like in Houston, if they were to play outside, or Miami where they do play outside, uh, these are places where the ball should theoretically travel farther than in more cold weather regions that play outside, uh, like some of the northern states. It's because in the north, the air is going to, on average, be denser than in the south. And, you know, I know that this is counterintuitive, but uh, a really warm and humid air mass, the ones where you feel, you can feel how sticky it is, that's actually the least dense, lowest density air mass. People get confused by that because sometimes when it's humid, you can that your visibility is restricted from right. haze, so you feel like you can see the humidity. So it must be must be more dense, but that's actually less dense than dry air. Well, doesn't get back to warm air rises and yeah. cold air Correct. contracts. It sinks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. cold yeah. air cold air is uh, going to sink because it's denser than warm air. Warm air rises because it's less dense than the cooler air. So as global temperatures have risen, then so have the temperatures at many of our baseball stadiums, and therefore so have game time temperatures. Of course, the the rise in temperatures isn't all that spectacular. We're not talking about like, it's, you know, 28 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it used to be. We're talking about incremental changes on the order of a couple to a few degrees, but that would nevertheless decrease the density of the air. And when the authors controlled for all the other variables, they found, yeah, sure. You know, there are, of course, things like steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, and training regimens have certainly increased home run productivity. And I've been trying to explain to people, nobody's claiming that the increased global temperatures caused all of or even the majority of additional home runs. However, it does seem clear and it makes perfect sense that at least a fraction of the new home runs that are being hit are attributable to uh, to warmer climate conditions because the air is less dense. It's really just that simple. It's right. 
A decrease in air density should make a ball travel faster or farther. So as long as it's not so hot that the players are distressed and so uncomfortable that they can't swing a bat well, then presumably you'd be able to send a ball once it hits the bat faster and or farther than in a, conditions with slightly lower temperatures. The, the change is what was it? Like an increase in home runs of about 500 over the past 10 years? I believe that's correct, yes. That's, those are the home runs attributable to climate change. There's far more home runs that have been hit during that time. So they're just a, uh, they're only representing a fraction of the increase. So, you know, a decent fraction, but not, not, the, not the totality of the increase. Interesting. Other yeah. things going on. Well, let's talk a little bit now about severe weather, and we'll yeah. get to Severe Weather Awareness Week, which is coming up in Minnesota. But we've seen a pretty active tornado season so far. Now, nothing in Minnesota yet, but darn close. We've had tornadoes down in Iowa, yeah. so, I mean, it's it's not been that far away from Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, correct. We had the big tornadoes in Iowa uh, with basically during that big April Fool's weekend storm that yes. we had uh, up here produced tree crushing snow here with ice and thunder and there were severe thunderstorms and tornadoes in Iowa and Illinois. We've had now a few outbreaks this year in the central U.S. and the southern U.S. that have been pretty nasty and we've had you know uh, quite a few fatalities. Uh, two, two different outbreaks causing over 25 fatalities so far. Now, in the first quarter of 2023, we have set a preliminary yeah. tornado record, over 400 yeah. tornadoes. How unusual is that, Kenny? And does that uh, portend perhaps a more active severe weather season? Not always. Yeah, good question. It is unusual. Um, obviously, if we set a record for most tornadoes preliminarily so far, then we could say that we've probably never counted this many tornadoes this early before. All that said though, Jim, some of the kind of familiar talking points we've covered before, we have a better spotter system. We, uh, the National Weather Service is more careful than it used to be about validating or verifying where tornadoes occur. So its follow-up tends to be more rigorous. And so as a result, there's a good chance we're counting more tornadoes than we used to because we're trying harder. And is urban density, density of population, another factor here that we have more we, folks that can actually spot tornadoes and report them than might have happened, I mean, you, you know, 80, sure. 100 years ago? I mean, the main thing is your spotters are better trained than ever. And right. the spotting programs are amazing. And so if a spotter reports a tornado, it's confirmed tornado on the ground and now it often comes with video right. and if the tornado doesn't do any damage because it doesn't hit anything no follow-up storm survey is required you've got a confirmed tornado because of a volunteer resource that's available now that probably wouldn't have been available 30 years ago 25 years ago and we have more spotters now probably than we've ever had with wider coverage across the country I'm not saying that that's the only reason we have a high tornado count right now. It's just that, that that kind of thing, the way that the Weather Service warns and verifies tornadoes to make sure that they actually occurred, 
uh, we tend to see more, count more than we used to. That said, it's definitely been an active year. You can just count the number of weather systems that have come through that have the right ingredients to produce tornadoes. And you're not off the charts, but you're on the high end. It's been a very active, first three months were quite active. April, so far, has been pretty quiet. Uh, not, not nearly as active as some of the bad, the really bad years. In terms of what it means, jury is out. You know, I, I think you've read about and understand that a lot of our early season severe weather it comes out of the deep south, affects areas like, you know, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, sometimes into Kentucky, as we've seen this year, up into Missouri and Illinois and Iowa, into the Ohio Valley. These are all areas that are always the most likely to kind of get a fast start for severe weather. And the patterns that cause severe weather in those areas are not necessarily identical to the patterns that cause severe weather up here. Different types of storm systems with different ingredients. Uh, so it's hard to know where we're gonna go. Moreover, some years we've had really active situation in the deep south and a really active storm season up here. But the kind of main severe weather area that people think of in Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas doesn't get in on much of that. And that takes a huge bite out of the annual numbers, even though it's extremely active in the deep south and extremely active in Minnesota. And you know, it's hard to know what's gonna happen, but it, based on history, it's probably more likely than not that we'll have a busy severe weather season, just based on history. Snowy winters tend to have more severe weather than non-snowy winters following them. And, uh, and also years that transition from La Nina, out of La Nina towards El Nino. Enso. Enso, yeah, they tend to have a uh, higher frequency of severe weather during that transition period. Even though we don't know exactly why, we just know that you know, it's more than half of the time you end up with a pretty busy, busier than average severe weather season. So I don't have a physical reason for why this is going to happen, why this would happen, but just based on historical odds, I'd say we're more likely to have busy severe weather up here in Minnesota, even if not much happens in Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Texas. So since we just threw out another term, ENSO, what exactly does that mean, Kay? Oh, ENSO is the El Nino, El Nino Southern Oscillation, E-N-S-O, ENSO. Um, and it's really a kind of multi-phase weather pattern that oscillates between a warm situation, which was El Nino, and a cold one. Now. What we're talking about getting warm and what we're talking about getting cold is the water off of the, near the equator in the Pacific Ocean. When that water is warmer than normal, for a few months in a row, we call that El Nino. Uh, it's because it usually starts showing up around Christmas time in, and so the Spanish term for the Christ child is El Nino. Yes. And so, uh, that's why I got the name, and then, you know, 
because then there's this opposite pattern where those same waters become cool um, from off the Pacific coast of South America across the Pacific near the equator. It just it's called La Nina, which would be the you know the daughter. Right. So they tend to result in El Nino conditions tend to result in very stormy conditions in the southern United States during the winter time uh, with a mixed bag that generally point towards mild winter conditions here and La Nina tends to be on average colder and snowier winters up here even though both those signals are somewhat erratic because we are what 2800 miles away from the source region of you know that the equatorial Pacific we're far away from it so there's a lot of room between where those systems originate and when they get to us and a lot can change well we did mention of course the uh, preliminary tornado record for the first quarter of 2023 and I'm going to ask you a question Kenny about the climatology of tornadoes so in Minnesota, we're fortunate to have records, at least in the Twin Cities, climatological data going back to the 1870s. If you count the uh, observations taken at Fort Snelling, it goes back even earlier than that. But don't we have an issue with tornado climatology? Oh, yeah. We really don't know a lot prior to 1950, do we? Is, is 1950 kind of the point where we start to have more reliable data regarding tornadoes, or am I wrong on that? I, I would say more like this. Beginning in the 1990s, tornado observation began looking more like it looks now. And the climatology of tornadoes became, I wouldn't say more predictable, I mean we still see changes because of non-meteorological factors. But that's when we entered the modern era, where we began to see something that was close to the true number of tornadoes. You know, so we, as recent as 1990? I would say as recent as 1990. Wow. Now, prior to that, even though that's when the National Weather Service really began keeping track of tornadoes, beginning in, the, in 1950, uh, there's some things that you see in the old historical tornado records that you just don't see very much anymore. Lots of, lots of tornado tracks that were, you know, 50, 70, 100 miles long, uh, you know, with continuous paths. And it's not because there were tornadoes were worse back then. It's because we didn't have a complete understanding of how tornadoes worked. Right. And there were no formal surveys. And so they would just say, oh, well, a tornado went from, you know, Des Moines to... Eau Claire, <laughs> which, uh-uh, unlikely. So you're telling me the tri-state tornado of 1925, probably multiple tornadoes? Actually, that one has held up to additional really? scrutiny. That's uh, fascinating. We do have some very long track tornadoes, and even, you know, the tornadoes of March 29th, 1998 in Minnesota, one of them did travel over 60 miles. There was one that was confirmed to travel over 80 miles in northern Wisconsin in 2017. And so we do know that some tornadoes will stay on the ground for a long time. And there's got to be a champion somewhere. So this idea that one was on the ground for over 200 miles, we don't think there's many of them. But the tri-state tornado may, be, uh, may actually have been a single tornado in a strong supercell uh, 
Most of the research that's been done on it have shown that it's plausible wow. that that was a continuous tornado. Uh, but there's some there's some difficulties with the historic tornado record, and the tornado historian Tom Grazulis, who wrote a gigantic book that is considered to, people we call it the Green Bible, is this gigantic book of uh, all the tornadoes going back into the 1600s. He makes a good point that once you get into the late 1800s, the modern, the current survey system for um, surveying townships was already in place and the rural population was pretty well spaced at that time and it kind of provided a grid with equal probability of seeing tornadoes and that from the 1860s or 70s depending on when a given area developed right up until the 1950s 60s and 70s you probably had decent homogeneity in how you were tracking and capturing tornado information so i would actually say I could take the tornado data from the early 1900s with about as much seriousness as from the 1970s. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's been some good research. Uh, yeah, but but we still don't really know what the true number of tornadoes in it old, you know, has been up until fairly recently and we we know we're still missing some, but not nearly as many. Uh, and certainly in the middle of the early part of the 20th century, we had no idea how many tornadoes were actually striking Minnesota. So building a true climatology is difficult. And we know because of modern sensing techniques and storm spotting and the way that the Weather Service warns and verifies their tornadoes that we are seeing more now. So there would be a little asterisk on the record. If 2023 does break a record, there would probably be an asterisk. You know, we see these better than we used to. Right. Well, this is a perfect segue to Severe Weather Awareness Week, which starts sure. on Monday, April 17th. And uh, Kenny, when we look at Severe Weather Awareness Week, uh, a lot of the, um, I guess, conventional wisdom about tornado safety changed over the years. I can remember back in the day, and it wasn't, well, I guess it was a long time ago, the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was, if there's a tornado, seek shelter in the southwest corner of the basement, debunked, uh, open windows on the side of your house yeah. opposite of the approaching storm, good, good way to get debunked. Hit, good way to get hit by debris and to waste precious moments. Right. So things have changed. What's the best course of action now? Just oh, find a, a good, safe interior room. Uh, in your home, you don't have to worry about what corner of the basement you're in. I mean, obviously, if the siren, one thing we should mention is, tornado warnings are much more precise now than they were. You were talking about the, the very active 1970s and 80s. People who were around then would know that the sirens seemed to be going off all the time, and that's not only because of how active it was, but that's because the old siren technologies, you had to kind of warn a huge area, much larger than the area that was affected by the tornado or the damaging thunderstorm. And the same is true for the warnings that the Weather Service was issuing. They had to cover entire counties. There was no way to be more precise than that at the time. So there's a big change. Now, National Weather Service can warn for really area affected by the storm itself. 
they call it a poly, you know, they, so they can draw out the polygon or the shape of the storm's path and they can just warn for that extrapolated path. And if it requires siren activation, some counties, many counties, now have the ability to limit their sirens to just that area. So, first thing is, if you hear that you're in a tornado warning, yes, of course, there are, you know, near misses and false alarms still. There are times where there's no tornado, but it seems like there would be one. But, really, it's much more likely now than it was even 15 years ago that a tornado is approaching you or near you when you hear the sirens go off or when you hear that you're in a tornado warning. If you are in a home or a structure with a basement, you should go to the basement. If you can get under some stairs, you should get under stairs. You should go to the smallest room that you can. If there is no basement, you should find the smallest interior room you can find with basically a short wall span so that you have the most structural strength protecting you. Things get dicey once if you're not in a building. Like if, so if you're in a school, okay, go to a hallway, go to a bathroom if you don't have a basement. If you can't get to a bathroom, get to the smallest room possible. Stay away from windows. At all costs, avoid gymnasiums and auditoriums. Poorly supported roofs. Yeah. If you're in a large like shopping mall type complex with a huge roof, get to it wall but you know find a small room get to a bathroom if you can find a stairwell a co but uh, but once you're not in a building or especially a well-built building you're, you're it's much harder to give really good advice right probably a good piece of advice would be not to get in your car and try to drive away yeah I mean okay so let's be smart here if you can see a tornado which most people will never do. But if you're in a situation where you can see the tornado, unless it's like the movies and there's debris already bombarding you, in which case you just need to get as low as you can as fast as you can. There's probably no time for you to get into a shelter if you're outside. But in most cases, if you can see a tornado, it's going to be more than five miles away. You got to think of the, the sort of laws of geography here. Tornadoes are small and they cover generally small areas and you can see them from up to 15 miles away depending on the landscape. And most of the time if you see a tornado it's going to be far away. Good recommendation is, again, unless the tornado is bearing down on you, if you can see it, give yourself a few seconds and watch its motion. You might not need to do anything at all. Ah, yes. If the tornado is not heading towards you, why create an additional hazard by getting in your car and driving somewhere? Right. All right. If it appears to be coming towards you, you want to try and drive away from it. Not like it's chasing you and you drive farther away from it, but get out of its path. Again, if it's coming towards you, the best thing to do is as you're driving or biking or running away from it, then turn to the right so that it will miss you to your left. Essentially a right angle to the tornado. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. say it's always confusing. Oh, turn yeah. it, right, drive it right angles mm -hmm. from the tornado. Yeah, right, right. If you are facing the tornado and it's coming towards you, you'd want to move to your left. Right. If you are 
If the tornado is behind you and coming towards you, you would want to turn to the right. This is because basically with respect to a tornado's path, as the tornado is moving forward, the whole storm that's producing it with all of its hail and strong winds and heavy flooding rain and lightning is just to the left of its path. So if you turn left into that storm, you're likely to lose visibility and lose orientation and be back where you started in a high amount of danger. Whereas to the right, there's generally more clearing where you can see better and those hazards, although they're still present, you still could get, you know, lightning is still a threat. There's still some strong winds. You'll generally be in a safer place. So I'd say first, just watch the tornado if you can and make sure it's not heading towards you. If it is heading towards you, try to get out of its way. Try to get to a shelter. If you can't get to a shelter and the tornado's coming towards you and you don't have time to get out of the way, get into the lowest area possible, a ditch. This is really true. Tornado winds increase with height and they don't they don't do a good job of like they don't dig. They don't and they're not movie villains that are out to to get whatever they can. Right. So if a tornado passes over a ditch, it's going to do far less. It might not have any suction capabilities at the lowest part of that ditch. You could actually potentially ride it out and hope that you just don't get showered by the nails and debris and yep. you know mm-hmm. shingles and uh, glass that's flying through the tornado. Right. But uh, and if you know, there's no ditch available. This is where things get a little bit dicey. Vehicles have a lot of people die in cars. But at a certain level, if the tornado's not particularly intense, if it's just kind of an average tornado, you might actually be safer in a car where you're at least shielded from the debris right. than, uh, than being outside. But you have to realize... There's been a hot debate about this in the research field, and the consensus is that if you're that close to a tornado, there's no guarantees. Right. There's no guarantees. We're, we, nobody's taking respect. Fully disclaiming, I'm not giving, you don't want to be close to a tornado. You yes. have to do everything you can to get out of it. If you're outside and exposed to it, you might survive and you might not. You might be injured and you might not. If you're in a car and you're exposed to a tornado, you might be okay and you might not. Your car might not move and it might get hurled into a building. Right. It's, I mean, it's, you really want, which is why you want to avoid being in the tornado. Right. <laughs> really right. don't want to be in a tornado. Right. Well, when we talk about severe weather season in Minnesota, Obviously, June is the big month for severe weather, severe thunderstorms, tornadoes. But in recent years, our severe weather season has expanded. We never, until relatively recently, had experienced a Minnesota tornado in December. Yeah. And that's gone now. Is it pretty much true now that January and February are about the only two tornado-free months, at least in terms of our experience here in Minnesota? Yeah, in Minnesota, we haven't had a tornado in uh, January, February, and I would say those days are numbered. I mean, Wisconsin's had January tornadoes, Iowa's had January tornadoes. Uh, I imagine that the first one to to break bread with the uh, 
you know, other winter months will probably be southern and southeastern Minnesota. The same area that was affected by the December tornadoes uh, would be the likely area to receive the uh, January and February tornadoes. If you just look at where our early season tornadoes have been and our late season tornadoes have been, they've generally been in the southeastern one-third to one-quarter of the state. I mean, the, the tornado in March of 1998 did begin in southwestern Minnesota, but it was really that its path was really across the southeastern, you know, one-fifth or so of the state. Uh, the first tornadoes in uh, Mar an early March of 2017 that became the earliest tornadoes on record. There was one up in the Princeton area, uh, there were other tornadoes down closer to Albert Lee. The tornadoes of uh, December 2021 were all basically in the southeastern sixth or so of the state. Right. Now, we should mention that we just, I guess, observed the 25th anniversary of the St. Peter Comfrey tornadoes yeah. back in 1998. That's, yeah, March 29, 1998. Yeah. 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 We did as a kind of a grim anniversary. This was a you know, a very an unusually it had been a warm winter and we didn't have uh, we didn't have much in the way of winter weather. We had a brief bout in January, but it was pretty warm. And so by March, we were getting into some pretty late spring and even almost summer-like air masses and temperatures into the 70s with pretty muggy air flowed up into parts of southern Minnesota. There's a strong low pressure system in, out to the southwest with a warm front that went right up basically through the Mankato area and a huge thunderstorm formed right along that front and just traveled from west-southwest to east-northeast. Basically from southwestern Minnesota to just north of Mankato, through St. Peter, into La Center, um, just missed the Northfield Cannon Falls area, went into southern Dakota County, and it was a, a series of tornadoes, but one, one really long track, another pretty long track, uh, rated F4 and F3 for the big ones. Uh, I think it was two fatalities, and uh, and a lot of damage. I mean, devastation big tornadoes so yeah that was uh, a grim anniversary and that was an example of minnesota's tornado season you know which has at times stretched into early april historically that was the first time we saw a big killer tornado really nasty one in march um, and then of course uh you know we've had we've had tornadoes frequently in september but with the increasing frequency in October, and as you pointed out, now we've added, well, we had already added November and now December to the mix. The times, they are a-changing. I'll bet. Minnesota's Bob yeah. Dylan, yes. Well, Kenny, always great talking with you. This yeah. is way over our heads, and uh, we will reconnect soon. Kenny, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, good talking to you, Jim.